This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Hey everyone, welcome to Going in Circles Live. It's Tuesday, and uh, we have a, a couple guests on our show today. We have it, it's kind of a uh, a Singletary reunion, as we have Singletary, the Breeders' Cup, uh, I think two thousand seven, or it was two thousand four, um, winner, the trainer. Don Chatlos is going to join us. Don's um, <clears throat> kind of making a, a career change, and uh, we're going to talk with him. and And he's a well-spoken guy who's got a a wide range of opinions on on the business, and he he's seen it from a lot of different views. and I'm eager to have him on and, and hear what he has to say. And coming up after him is a uh, is Singletary's. 10-year-old mascot who's no longer 10 years old, but Jose Santos Jr., who is now a jockey agent for uh, several jockeys in, in the Midwest at, at several different tracks. Um, we will have him on uh, to talk about um, how how he got in into being a jockey agent uh, and juggling four or three different tracks uh, and three or four different jockeys and and how he gets through and handles that. Um, it's kind of a, we had a little bit of a, a slow weekend. Um, last week we had a, some stakes at Gulfstream. Um, not, not not really major races, but they were all competitive races. Uh, we talked about this last night on the, the Big Monday show. Just kind of a, a recap of the the Gulfstream, um, the stakes, the dirt stakes were were all one on the lead, which is not all that surprising. And uh, the turf stakes had had some surprises in there, and, but um, it's kind of quiet. It's, it's a quiet time of the year for the best horses. The the, the top horses are, are they're either laid up or they're um, you know just starting back up and preparing for for next season uh it, it looks like we're going to be affected by winter in new york uh, thursday's card seems to be in jeopardy with with snow coming in which is not an issue that we have down here but um it, it's definitely uh it's definitely winter and uh the fairgrounds is is, is uh up and running and um it really hasn't had a, a whole bunch of races of note over there. Um, after the first year, their their stake schedule kind of cranks up a little bit. Um, today we're going to talk about, um, you know, get different people's views on 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 things. And I thought uh, Don was a, a someone who I'd I'd like to have on um, because he has has worked for big outfits. He's uh, trained on his own. He, he's, uh, you know, he started out in the Midwest and wound up out west, and you know, then back east. So he, he's been a, he's been all over the place, and 
he's not afraid to express his opinion, which is something that is in short supply in this, this business. A lot of people um, have a lot of opinions, getting them to actually formulate them and say them in public has not always been the easiest thing to do. And, and like most industries and most businesses, there's always some blowback. Um, this business, uh, people are particularly sensitive. I'm not really sure why. Um, there's a lot of pettiness that goes on. And we, uh, we want to be a big boy sport, but but often we don't want to get the big boy criticism that uh, that does come along with it. As sometimes we we um, we need to to really you know work together to raise all ships. But we have to also realize that there's a lot of a lot of things that need changing, and and that that's something that. Um, that's something that that's really been hard to do. It's really hard to get um, hard to get the the players in this industry to not try to paint a rosy picture. And clearly, you don't want to be negative. You don't want to air your dirty laundry in the public all the time. But but we also we have to kind of uh, do a little better. Than, uh, than we've been doing, and um, I mean the whip rules, uh, which, which have just gotten to be um, confusing, and it's it's difficult to to fathom if we could have had um, a worse uh, kickoff to to changing the whip rules, where they're different everywhere. And uh, the Jockeys Guild is meeting uh, this week, and, and that's one of the big topics, of course, because um, the jockeys <laughs> are the people that actually carry the whips. And in a lot of ways, they, um, they, they weren't even consulted. And it's, it's one of those nagging things that I, I understand where they're coming from because a lot of changes were made to medication rules and often um, the horsemen weren't involved in the process or were involved in the process in a way which didn't exactly involve them. It was just kind of, oh, yeah, by the way, this is what we're doing and, uh, you know, you might like it, you might not like it. One of the things that uh, has come out of the Jockeys Guild um, assembly is that they're supporting consistency in, in riding crop rules. And, and that's something that, that just seems to be lost so many times in this rush to get things changed sometimes is that, um, you know, this state does it differently than that state does it differently. And they have opinions on this and this guy has opinions of that. And it, it just could have been done in such a different way. I mean, you have different rules in, in, in California. New Jersey has probably the strictest rules, and they're not currently racing in in New Jersey. But when they come back in the springtime, if there's no changes, essentially the jockeys won't be allowed to 
use the whip at all except for you know, quote unquote safety purposes and it, it's such a nebulous kind of term and like does that mean the horse has to bolt does that mean a horse that's getting out does that mean um what, what exactly and it, it's just uh it's confusing and, and it's going to be confusing and i know there's always people who say well they changed the rules in california and you know like the sky didn't fall down well most rules that are changed uh, it's a residual effect and it, it's a, a cumulative effect it's not like right from day one everyone's gonna walk out but there's already been instances of jockeys that have been fined multiple times and they're still getting the same penalty and at some point someone's going to say and if they haven't already well jockey a has, has been fined seven times for the same offense and and obviously he, it's not changing his habits. It's not changing his way of doing things. So <laughs> what happens then? Uh, do do we get more severe penalties? Do do we get, um, um, uh, you know, a change in the rules? Um, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's just, it's just confusing. And it's, it's, um, it's just, it's our own personal like industry dysfunction. It's just dysfunction that we have these changes in New York. I know is taking public comment, and they'll change the rules, and their rule will be a little different, and and, and it'll be the same thing, the same thing. And there's no need to change the rules today or tomorrow or next week. There's just not. The urgency is just not required. Let's slow down and do it right but that's something we never do we never slow down and do it right it's it's always um it's always it's very frustrating because you hear the the rhetoric um that you're going to be fed and it just doesn't ever seem to change and you know we're going into a year now and i, I don't think some people realize that um a lot of these stake races at some of the bigger major tracks aren't, aren't going to be, um, are not going to be run with Lasix and it's going to change things. And yeah, maybe you watch the race and it's not like horses are just going to start like freaking out and jumping over the rail and flipping and going nuts. Of course, no, but it's possible that form changes are coming that you're not going to be able to see. It's, it's, it's um it's going to be it's going to be interesting you're going to have some tra- some states and some tracks that are are operating under the old rules and it's just uh, such a, a frustrating thing uh, i i wanted to say um uh that we had some some bad news um coming out of illinois and uh Roger Brugerman, longtime trainer there, um, has died from uh, complications of COVID. Um, Roger's not was not a, a young a young man. I, I believe he was he had to have been in his seventies. But um, it it kind of hits home, a, you know, a little stronger when it's it's your own. It's it's people you know, and I wasn't really close or, or friendly with Roger. 
uh, I always <laughs> I was buying a horse one time and almost bit my head off. But uh, um, Brian Donato, who who's a runs a partnership. Uh, his his dad is has been really sick and um, he's been very public about the the fight they're going through and trying to get um, a certain medication that seems like it it's worked. I mean, there's a lot of talk about the the vaccine, but uh, the vaccine's not a is, is a is a preventative measure. It's not a uh, it's not a treatment. So those who already have it are still having to deal with with that. My my brother and his wife both um, have been quarantined after testing positive. Um, it's it's a uh, it's tough. It's it's very tough, and and they're doing fine. I mean, they had mild symptoms. Um, they're both you know healthy people, and uh, they exercise and they eat relatively well. So, um, it's still kind of a, a, a tough thing that that racing is going to have to get through. And I know there was a lot of consternation about Gulfstream kind of reversing course and and not allowing the general public in though they're letting them in for um Pegasus thing <laughs> so i guess if you pay enough you know but um it's it's going to be an issue and and uh, I, I know that uh, uh the university of michigan football team just canceled its third game in a row i have 50 people tested positive 50 so it's um i'm just happy that that we're still racing that uh, we haven't really had any um really e- even slowdowns um over the last few months racing has kind of gone relatively unscathed outside of golden gate which is looking like the well it's pretty clear now that they will not be be racing again um in the calendar year 2 2020 and a lot of horses are starting to pop up uh, golden gate horses uh at los alamitos and uh, turf paradise has uh apparently got a, a, an influx of horses from there so um i'm not exactly sure what's going to happen um in northern california uh, i don't know that anyone really knows but it's hard to get those horses back once they've left, especially in the wintertime. And you're talking about a lot of uh, lower-level horses. You're not talking about um, expensive horses that um, the people have no issue just shipping around. So it's uh, it, it remains to be seen exactly what goes on uh, in Northern California, which is really the, the one track outside of you know colonial had the issues with the jockeys um and they had a short meet anyways but uh i i don't see golden gate being open anytime soon it just seems uh it seems like things are going to be tough tough there and and that kind of sucks because uh you know a lot of people are year-round residents there and they have houses and they they've been there forever and you know they, they have a a particular type of surface there the horses uh have have been sent there that that you know and that stay there appreciate that surface and um it's it's just uh it's the worst case scenario and then and because it's not a big track and they don't 
get a tremendous amount of handle. Um, and it's a West Coast track, so a lot of the East Coast people don't even realize, you know, things that's not even going. Uh, it's it's not easy. It's it's a very very difficult thing, and I think that that's something that we all have to be aware of and have to continue to try to follow the proper protocols and not, uh, you know, give the tracks a break. I mean, listen, we rag on tracks a lot, but with the COVID, it's it's a really it's a tough 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 situation. They're dealing with health departments. They're dealing with county, um, state level. There, there's just a lot of different things. Um. I want to welcome our first guest. He's a uh, he's a long time, long suffering Chicago Bears fan, but we won't hold that against him. Don, are you there? I'm there, Chuck. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show, Donna. I wanted to get that out of the way early, and, and the Bears played really good this week. You know, they're... yeah, just good enough not to get a good draft pick. That's how it always goes. <laughs> it's like that horse. You know, you got that horse, and you say, you know, the next bad race, uh, I'm sending it to the farm, and then they run fourth. You know, ah. right, exactly, exactly the same thing. Good enough to keep it, but not good enough to really make a difference. Right. Well, John, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, on the show and uh i think uh i kind of let off the show saying hey we have don chatlos on the show he's willing to actually say something unlike most people in this business (laughs) (laughs) thanks for having me i appreciate it so i've kind of teed it up for you You got to say something controversial you know we had oh man we had swift hitter last week you know it's a tough act to follow but uh, oh yeah you can't beat him there's no way he, he was on his best behavior though so was he? Nah, no, no conspiracy theories, uh, no aliens, no. <laughs> I, th- I, I think uh, he, he hadn't been drinking yet, so it was, it was, it was good. That could be it. Um, Don, you you kind of started training not that a few years before I did. I started in '99. You uh, you went on your own, uh, or at least started uh, running horses in your own name in, in uh, 1995. Is that that's right? Yeah, for a couple of years, then back to being assistant, and then back again. I, I've been back and forth a few times. Where where um where did you uh, grow up, Don? How did you get into racing? I grew up um in Chicago on the south side of Chicago, and I grew up in a racing family. My uncles, my dad trains. I have an uncle now that was on my. My dad and his brother, that was on my dad's side. Now on my mom's side, Brian Williamson, who is married to Lida Veneer out of the Harvey Veneer family out of Chicago, um, you know, he took over that stable um, when Harvey passed away and had been working for him before that. So he trains here in Kentucky, um, and they've kind of moved out of Illinois. They, You know, they were a big Illinois racing family, um, but they're training here in Kentucky and between Kentucky and Oakland. You know, it's it's. I was at Arlington for two summers, and I have to tell you, it's a really great place. I mean, Arlington Park is kind of, um, you know, the track is beautiful, the area is nice. The, I mean, we were on Poly Track, which kind of, you know, I mean, had its its, its ups and downs, but it, it was just so such a nice place to train horses, and 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 the people would, you know, that on the Friday afternoons and. They'd get the big crowds, the twilight racing, and then the weekends they'd get good crowds. And of course, the Million Festival was always a, a good time. And 
and uh, it's it's really sad to see, um, you know how, how Chicago racing is really you know kind of it's spiraling down 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 and and uh, you know you grew up in it so I'm sure for you it's a, it's a bigger a bigger culture shock and and kind of a disappointment than it is for for us people who didn't. Yeah, it really is. You know, I've been very fortunate to have in my time that traveled to the best tracks in the country. I mean, from going from the West Coast through the Midwest to the East Coast. And I tell everybody, on an August afternoon when it's 78 degrees and it's nice weather, sitting at Arlington Park, there's no place that can match that. And, you know, you've had some of the best trainers in the country, whether it be Bobby Frankel, you see now Chad Brown points to those races, best turf courses in the country probably. And Chicago being the sports city that it is and can't support horse racing, it, it's it's very disappointing. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it's such a the, – the, the paddock is, is just a great uh, – just beautiful. And, and um, I, I really enjoyed my, my two years, my two summers I spent there. And it just got to be – we didn't go back because the, the, the money just wasn't good enough. And, yeah, and now it looks like Hawthorne is going to be the place they're building their casino, and they're going to be the one that kind of takes over, the, you know, the racing in Illinois. Yeah, I mean, I give them a lot of credit. They're hanging in there, and I mean, they run a, a, a harness meet as well, um, because there used to be a bunch of harness tracks in 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 the in the you know the Illinois and I mean Quad City Downs, Maywood Park, Balmoral, um, Sportsman's. Sportsman. You know, so that, you know they're down to one track essentially. That yep. was that was my hustle. That was my hustle as a teenager because Hawthorne and Sportsman's were right next to each other. So I would work in the morning for my dad at Sportsman's, and then I would go across to Hawthorne and clean tack for the harness horse guys because they have so much of it. Right, right. And that would be my gambling money right there every day. So yeah, it, the harness was big there at one time. But you know, I got to give a shout out to Jim Miller at Hawthorne. He is the guy. It has just worked tirelessly to get this done. He, you know, he he he's Hawthorne's right hand, and he's getting it done. Yeah, they're they're committed to doing it. I mean, they're committed to getting the casino built and and um, trying to keep it alive. And I mean, it's 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 Chicago. I mean, this is some yeah. of the things that that just you know you, you're almost incredulous. Like some of our biggest cities, biggest really sports cities. Boston has no thoroughbred live thoroughbred racing anymore. I mean, Chicago is, is down to one track. Um, LA is down to, you know, if, I mean, we all know that Los Alamitos isn't, isn't going to be forever. So they'll be down to one track. We don't know. I was just talking before you came on about Golden Gate and how the horses from Golden Gate are, are, are popping up everywhere else. And, I don't know even if that situation gets uh, you know firmed up and, and the, the COVID issues they had on the backside um, you know, dissipate. How many horses are going to be left there for them to actually be able to to run a meet? Because you know those cheaper horses once they've gone somewhere else, it's tough to get them back. Yeah, you can't get them back. You know, but but some of our, our our biggest cities and and you know these are all big sports cities too. We, we have um, you know it's it's. Hollywood Park was was really. Um, I think we were, you know, as an industry, I think we were a little bit in denial when Hollywood Park just kind of, you know, Churchill just kind of 
you know, tossed it to the wayside and, and uh, you know, they made a lot of money on the deal, but I, I mean, it's, well, it's hard Hollywood to believe. Park, the Hollywood Park faithful were just besides ourselves that they weren't fighting to keep that place open. And you, when you look at the Hollywood Park situation, you can, it's a microcosm of racing in general, the short-sightedness. I mean, people were saying stupid things like, oh, good, we won't have to drive over to Inglewood anymore when that track's gone. I mean, just stupid things. And now it's gone, and believe me, half of them that were saying that won't admit it, but the other half are saying, man, that was a huge mistake not fighting for that place because it left a gaping hole in an industry that, I mean, in an area that couldn't afford it. And now they have to deal with the consequences. I think this COVID situation, we'll see, you know, how they capitalize on it. We're seeing now that Golden Gate being shut down the way it is because of COVID and those horses coming down to Southern California to race has bolstered the field size there. That's something that they really need to look into. I I know it's a long way away, five hours up to, to, you know, Northern California, but they're going to have to somehow try to work that circuit that way to tap into that horse population in Northern California and vice versa when they run at Golden Gate. Um, you know, Del Mar can only do so much with their, you know, seven weeks in the summer and then they get the four-week meet in the fall. You know, if horses start leaving, they really suffer because no one's coming back for seven weeks in the summer and four weeks in the fall. They're not going to make that trip back to California. So we'll see. I think they're getting a good idea of what would happen if they combined – and, and made, you know, one circuit because the, those horses from Golden Gate have really helped the field size at, at Los Alamitos. I think, was it Craig Burnick that was an advocate of, of doing that, of, of having a single circuit and, and giving, you know, taking a couple breaks down south and, and having the horses, you know, just running some sort of shuttle service up and back? and um, Because I, I think it, it's important that, that – you know, Northern California, without the fairs too. I mean, the, the fairs. Some of the fairs have shut down, and and that's, um, I, I, I never stabled out there, but I, I was privy to some of the, the conversations about what was going on out there with the fairs, and there was a simulcast issue, and who was the signal host, and, and, you know, when they lost some of the fairs, uh, they lost a, a good deal of their their population because it was so much cheaper for, for trainers with the cheaper horses to stable at the fairs than it was, um, to stable at, at in, in San Francisco. And, right. you know, those, those are the things that don't, they just don't come back. And those are the little things that people don't see that, that, you know, they chip away, they chip away, they chip away. And I mean, I've been a huge, you know, I, I've been for 15 years. I've said, listen, you guys, Super trainers, they might seem great in your ideas, but you're killing the middle class. You're always going to have guys with a couple cheap horses and the bottom level claimers because most horses will wind up down at that level at some point, you know? Sure. And sure. You, th- those horses are always going to be around, but you're, 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 you're really destroying the guys like me, the guys that had 15, 20, 30, 40 horses that had the second strings that had the B-level horses, that had the $50,000 yearlings. I go, those guys don't exist. And we filled a lot of races on the undercards. We filled a lot of races on the weekdays. And that that's it, it chips away. And I think that 
Uh, you're seeing it in California where, you know, the, the loss of Hollywood Park, like you said, it's just a giant gaping hole in, in the uh, in, in the schedule. And, you know, with, with Mr. Allred, you know, pretty much saying that. The savior. He's one of the saviors. And he's not even in thoroughbred racing other than, you know, the few thoroughbred races they run at night. If it wasn't for him. There, there's no telling what the situation would be out there, and and it you know and Los Al's on borrowed time because he's already said that when he passes, they're selling it. It's so they've yeah. already got plans. So that that's you know hopefully he doesn't you know he lives twenty five more years, but right, I think right. he's in his eighties. So um, you know once you 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 take that out of the schedule, um, and there's horses stable there, correct? Yeah, year round. Yeah, yep. so you know, you take the that that's another issue, uh, the the stabling of horses. Um, so, in, in and these one of days, the reasons that you saw the issues at Santa Anita that you saw with the breakdowns in 2019 when they went through what they went through. You know, I've been in Southern California now for 35 years. For all my years there, when we would get to Santa Anita, you know, Santa Anita starts on December 26th and runs through the Santa Anita Derby in April. When we would get to mid-March, getting, you know, the lead-up to the Santa Anita Derby, we'd already be sending horses over to Hollywood Park because that track was getting bad at Santa Anita. It's had, you know, so many races over it, so much traffic over it. Now they race on that track for almost four months longer because there's no Hollywood Park. And they probably have eight to 900 more horses stabled there with traffic over that track every day. It doesn't take a genius to tell you how, how that is going to turn out. No, that's true. It, down in South Florida, when I, when I first started to train, Hialeah was still open and we could be, uh, we could come, we could ship down from Kentucky or New York and stable there. They would open up, uh, for, for, for training and, um, the two years that it was open while I trained and I had a lot of horses back then I had 50 horses at Hialeah and, and I would keep a dozen at Gulfstream and just it was the track surface at Hialeah was was great I mean you couldn't screw it up it, it, it didn't matter if they had hurricanes it didn't matter if they, they didn't right. do any maintenance on it it just was like a beautiful situation and it was a great I mean it was just an amazing place to train horses but yeah, I mean, it's the same. It's it's a similar situation, and and when that got taken away, uh, you know, they they built Palmettos, which is which is a nice. You know, I don't know if you've you've ever been there, but it's a good training center. Yeah, I've, I've it, never it, been. I've never trained there, but I've been there. It, it's it's a it's a good it's a good spot to train horses. It it really is. It's it's a you know it's a racetrack racetrack. It's not a a small track. It's it's you know regulation size for for lack of a better word and. You know the turf courses. You know you use the turf course four days a week to breeze on the turf. The gate's always up. They they have that backtrack, so it's it's a good place. The barns are nice. They're airy, but um, it, it's it's the same thing though. Gulfstream, you know, they they've built three gigantic tent barns over, um, you know, on the clubhouse turn, and that's just added to the traffic to an already overtaxed track. But what else are you gonna do? Especially now that right. Calder's going to go away, and they're going to build uh, three, three hundred, four hundred more stalls at Palmettos, which could probably handle it better than Gulfstream. There's just no room at Gulfstream, but but that's the thing. It's 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 another uh, issue that that um, that doesn't jump right out at you. But then you know you, you start to to dig a little bit, and you say, hey, 
where are we going to put these horses? And anyway, not not to get off the subject, let's talk about Don. <laughs> so, who are uh, who is like the first big trainer you worked for? My first big trainer was John Sadler. Um, that was the first big barn. I, I worked for some little barns, some little guys that you know were really good trainers. They just were the ten, fifteen horse guys. Um, and then I went, I was five, five years with John Sadler, um, in the early nineties. And, uh, that was really my introduction to breeders cups and Kentucky derbies and, you know, things that a kid from Chicago, I read about that stuff in the form. I, I didn't get to experience it. And, you know, at 19, I made a decision. I was leaving. I said, I'm going to do this racetrack thing, but it's, it's obviously not going to be here in Chicago. And I was torn between New York and your man, Alan Jerkins, was, has always been one of them. You know, I've been a fan of him forever. And California, and I was torn back and forth. And what got me was watching the Santa Anita Derby on ABC or whatever it was on back in the day. And it was about 20 degrees in Chicago in early <laughs> April. Yeah. And I saw that weather in Southern California. I said, no, that's the way I got to go. I, you know, when I, I grew up in Saratoga, and I remember – sitting there in, in february and watching the you know the 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 widener from Hialeah and seeing palm trees and <laughs> sun and you know you go outside and it's 12 degrees and it's snowing oh. it's like god i'll do anything to get out of here and, and be there <laughs> but um it's actually you know that time frame was 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 actually the same time frame that I was working for for Alan Jerkins. So it's a good thing you didn't come and, and, and take my job, man. You, would, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I ended up back there. Now Jason, the agent for Lescano, was my connection. He was a hot walker for Jerkins at that time. Yeah, J- Jason was so actually that, my first employee. Was he really? Jason left. See, you were there at that yeah. time, and I probably walked right past you because I okay. Remember at that time, Sadler sent me to New York a few times for long stays, three, four weeks. Um, and at that time, remember, they used to have the softball tournaments and the basketball tournaments in right there on the grounds at Belmont. Oh, yeah. And so Jason and I played basketball all the time. I would go over to Jerkins' barn when you guys were in that round barn, and then we would go back there, you know, in the back and, and play basketball back there. That was in the early 90s. Yeah, we uh, – they, they don't – they don't even have those softball tournaments or basketball or anything anymore. Yeah, you know, any not even in Southern California, it's all gone now too. Yeah, it's a it's a different it's a different situation. There's plenty of soccer games, but there's too much running yeah. in soccer. I'm too yeah, they, English, they have but, a lot of soccer. But um, so uh, after John, after you worked for John, what what you know what just made you decide to take a shot and go out on your own? You know, I had a chance to take a couple horses that were decent, and my first start ever as a trainer was in a stake and won first time out. So I knocked out the stake and and the win in the first shot. And and as the naive kid thinking, oh man, this is how it is. I got a rude awakening after See, that. That, that. That was uh, that was sportful snob, correct? <laughs> yes. At Bay Meadows. Right. Yep. A track that uh, so, also doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. But I, uh, yeah, so that was, you know, the first foray into training. And again, you know, you're in Southern California. It's no different than being in New York. You, you can't compete with those guys with four or five claiming horses. You have to get very lucky. Um, and then I went, so I went back to, I went to work for Ron Ellis. It was actually a really good job for me. I, I credit him 
with the patience that I used with Singletary that I got from Ron, mm-hmm. even though when I worked for Ron, his patience drove me crazy. Cause I, I just want, you know, we had these Wayne Hughes horses and let's run, let's run, let's run. And he's like, no, not yet. You know, he's very methodical. And uh, so I, I, I actually was a great job for me before I got Singletary. Cause that helped me with him. So how did you wind up with Singletary? Singletary was a total fluke. Um, you know, Billy Koch had had a, a couple syndicates before Little Red Feather. And uh, so him and I hit it off. You know, we met in, through Ron, and uh, we hit it off, and he wanted to start another one. And I was like, okay, let's do it. So I went to Florida to look at some horses. Now, we didn't have a lot of money. We had 100000 And uh, I had already bought two horses, so there really wasn't much left. And so... I had been there for three or four days, and you know how it is looking at horses. When you start to get on to that third or fourth day, they all start looking the same. Yeah. And so it was the end of the trip, and we were going to look at this last group before, you know, you have to make that drive from Ocala to Orlando to catch your flight. So by pure luck, the last set that they're bringing out was two nice horses that I couldn't afford, but they didn't know that. They wanted like 150 for one and 200 for the other, and, you know, there was no way. But – by accident, this the guy that was that had these horses. His son said, "Hey, Dad, we you know we forgot about that sultry song that was in the other barn. Do you want to put him with these horses right here?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, send them." So he sends that horse, and it, which was Singletary, and he galloped for a mile and a half with those other two in between them, step for step, effortlessly, like nothing. And I was like, "Okay, well that one could work right there." And I was like, "You know how much you want for that one?" And you know, it was 30000 it ended up being because we packaged the three horses. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then that's how the rest is history. That ended up being single pair. So it's, it's funny how, how these things just kind of happen, you know. Well, I, when you're a race tracker and you watch that movie Seabiscuit and that guy says the line that you don't choose the horse, the horse chooses you, you know that's right. Because there's no guarantee that that horse with somebody else would have did the same thing. You know, it's just what you do with the horse, the horse responds to, and, and, you know, that it just works out that way. You know, it's so true in that circumstances matter so much. And, um, I mean, certain, it's not as though when we're all training at the racetrack, we're doing things drastically different. It's not as though, uh, you know, I'm at a, a private training center and I have hills and I do this and I, right, right. but, but, but different guys have different philosophies and different techniques and different ways of, of doing things. And, and you're right. Some horses, um, just, I, I mean, I, I, when I first started working for Mr. Ramsey, we claimed a lot of horses and some of them we did good with some of them we didn't do so good with. And a lot of times there was one particular trainer we claimed horses off of. He was an older trainer and, um, he, he didn't do a lot of, um, stuff that you would consider, uh, basic these days, warming the horses every couple months, uh, ulcer medications, joint supplements, things like that. He, he was an old schooler. He didn't do any of those things. He didn't inject horses. He didn't, um, you know, he was just an old school guy and we would get these horses and man, sometimes you just warm them. You give them. You give them some ulcer medication. You, you give them a couple of shots of Adequan, and they they 
be feeling good and they'd run off the screen. And it wasn't like you gave them anything, any kind of juice or any, you know, anything well, illegal. That's what, yeah, right. That's or, what the people in the grandstand think when they see the turnaround. I claimed a horse off of Bill Mott. And I'm not saying that, I mean, certainly Bill Mott is, is a million times better horseman than I am. But we did really good with the horse because my blacksmith said, I, I, I'm not really, you know, I don't like the way they have this horse shod. Let's try something different. And, and you know, like I always tried to hire good blacksmiths so I didn't have to, like, you know, worry about that. And, and right. I, I almost always went with what those guys said. And, and he said, I, you know, see how they have this horse shod? I think, you know, if you did this, and this would be better and blah, blah, blah. And he was right. And it worked out. And the horse wound up, you know, we claimed him for, I don't know, 30000 He wound up winning a couple of stake races. And sometimes it's just that. And Bill Mott had 200 horses. And this horse was not up high on his priority list. He was in Kentucky, not with Bill right. in New York. And, you know, the, the horse was a, a solid horse, but he was a solid claiming horse. So for an outfit like that, they, they care about graded stake horses. They're not, you know, they're not living and dying with these um, you know, horses that don't look like they're going to be that kind of quality. And, and sometimes, like you said, it's just the circumstance and, you know, you know, I learned the last job that I had five years with Hollendorfer. I really got, I learned so much with him. Even I used to say to everybody, you know, I'm in my fifties now working for this guy. And, and that was one of the things that he used to stress all the time. Don't ever assume that the guy you got the horse from wormed and vaccinated, did their teeth. This You'd be surprised how many horses we claimed. And I was like, there's no way. What are we, we're checking teeth on this horse. This, this, and sure enough, the horse needed his teeth done bad. And all of a sudden now the horse is killing the feed tub, which, you know, once that starts happening, then other things start happening. They start training more aggressive. It, it's, it's amazing these little things that can get overlooked. <laughs> it's so funny. I claimed a horse at Saratoga once and uh for twenty, twenty five thousand. And the horse looked like crap. She really she really it was a filly, she really did. And we got her back to I, I sent her back to Kentucky. And back then I used to go from Saratoga, I had some in New York and, and some in Kentucky, and I sent her back to Kentucky and I I remember saying to my assistant, you know, we, we just gotta pack the groceries on this horse. I mean we gotta we gotta do a full court press. You know, change the shoes, do the teeth, the worm the horse. Uh, you know, just just everything that you can you can kind of do to make the horse uh, healthier and feeling better. And, and we got this horse. She looked so good. I mean, she was training good, and she was she looked great. I mean, you you couldn't tell it was the same horse. And I, I put her in a Keeneland for like thirty five, and I thought I was stealing money. And she ran like seventh. <laughs> you yeah. know, and and then I I ran her back, and she ran like fifth. And it was like the, the it was the it was the crazy thing. I took the blood. I said, she got to be sick. No, blood was fine. I mean, sometimes it doesn't really help, <laughs> and and that's the randomness. It, it doesn't. That's it, the randomness. A, I mean, obviously, anything, it, nothing surefire, because then people would just do that all the time. And, sure. But the one thing you know, Phillies are the hardest ones because once they quit, they're done. <laughs> The boys, we could trick them. We trick them, put them in company and works, try to make them more aggressive. You could, these Phillies, they're something else. When they're done, I don't care what you do to them. Like you said, you got that one looking like a million dollars, but it's not going to change the result. Nope. Just like the two legged ones. When they're done with you, they're done with and they're, you. When they're done with <laughs> you, that's it. So, um, obviously, you were there working for Hollendorfer when. Uh, there was all the, the you know the controversy happened with that, him and the Stronic group and the and, and all the issues and and you wound up actually 
um, kind of going in a different direction because of that. Just kind of talk about, uh, you know, what happened. Um, well, I was in New York, you know, Mr. Best, Oxo Equine, he wanted to have a stable back east. So Jerry put together his horses, which at that time were like five or six, and then Larry said, you know, I'll send you two-year-olds in New York. We'll, we'll build it up and get it up to 15 or 20. And then Jerry saw that as an outlet that he could send some horses from California that weren't doing well. Maybe they'll be better in New York. Also claim some and send them back. There was a whole plan there. And so I got there mid-May, and, you know, everything's rolling along. We win with our first starters. We're waiting, runs huge. First one we run. And then June 22nd came. And, it, you know, to this day, I still can't believe that it happened, number one, and number two, that it's still happening. So New York was fine. So I'm thinking, okay, Jerry will come with me here in New York. We'll go through Saratoga. By the time Saratoga's done, this will all be settled. You know, he'll be back in California, and that's it. And then, like, four days later, Naira drops the bomb. Nope, no good here either. So, you know, we literally went from, I don't know, he probably had 125, 130 horses on, on June 22nd. And by the time we got to July 1st, he might have had 40 horses left. So I'm torn now. There's no job for me. There, I can't go home because he's not going to pay Dan Ward as his number one assistant. He's not going to pay me and Dan Ward to stand at Los Alamitos staring at each other. And so I was, I was, it was like Tyson punched me in the head. I was so didn't know which direction to go. You know, they're telling me in New York that I can't take those horses to the track because obviously there's not a trainer now. So we got to the point where Larry just said, look, you're going to have to make a decision. Do you want to take these horses? Or, you know, do you want me to make other plans? And, and then I was like, well, shit, there is, I, there is no choice to make. I won't have a job. So I went and got the insurance and took out my license, and then, you know, the rest is, has been the way it's been. So what is, your, what is your role now working for Larry? Well, here's the problem that we faced was I always thought that Frankel had a really good plan of, you know, doing six months in New York, April, May, through Saratoga, and then, the fall meet at Belmont and then come back to California for the winter. Well, that's great if you have the help that's going to travel with you. So what ended up happening, I had a really great record in California. We had 15 starts, we won four races, a couple seconds. I mean, we did really well because I had all my people there. But then when I would have to leave with those horses to go east, I had, no, I had to start all over. I had a couple grooms that came with me, but the most important job was exercise rider. And I so. Every place I went, I had to get new riders on these horses, which means you're starting all over again because you know how these exercise riders are. They get on the horse, and they're going to reinvent the horse for you when the guy before really actually had the horse going really well. So when we went through Saratoga this summer and only had three starts and we got back here to Kentucky in the fall, Larry and I sat down, and I was like, look, this is, you know, you're either going to have to leave me in California, and we're going to just have to do it that way, which he didn't want a stable in California anymore. It's far for him from Boston. It's not fun for him because Larry likes to come. Like at Saratoga, he bought that house at the half-mile pole on the Oklahoma track. You know, and every weekend he tries to drive down from Boston at least for a day, come and see them. He really likes to come and see the horses and, and, and be involved that way. And so 
when he decided no more California, you know, the only option was go to Palmetto's, but I had zero help that was going to go with me to Palmetto's. The grooms were going back to California because that was the deal. We would do six months here, six months there. So when we sat down and, and looked at everything, I was like, look, you know what? You have over 70 horses now, and Larry has other businesses to run. He is busy. And, you know, I said, I could. it's better off for me instead of being a 10% trainer for you than to take this racing manager job and try to keep everything organized and let's try to make OXO, you know, the next Alan Paulson. And so that's what we decided, and that's what I've been doing. That That's actually probably a great role for you because um, and this isn't to denigrate racing managers, but a lot of them really have no clue about training horses. And, you know, having you under... Number one, not that the trainers you have are going to try to bullshit you because you guys got the best guys out there, but, you know, you, you understand where where the trainer's coming from because you've lived it and, and you understand how how it works with the jockeys. You understand how it works with the racing office and and uh, and you know horses. And, and honestly, he well, probably couldn't get a better guy. Well, I appreciate that. And, and you know, you're, you're a trainer. You know, we could speak, we speak to each other in a different way. Sure. So some of these racing managers, and again, I'm not knocking anybody. They put in their work, but they didn't work in the barn, and and you know where they could speak the same way we do. So like this group of horses that we have now going from Kentucky, that some will go to Brad Cox, some are going to Chad. I oversaw the rehab at some of these training centers here at Blackwood, and then we had some at the Thoroughbred Center. And see, I can tell Larry, okay, this one's ready to go to Chad. This one's ready to go to Brad. And it cuts out a lot of wasted time. And, and you know, and then when they do go, if there's any kind of issues, I could explain to them, hey, look, this one's going to come in, this, this, and this. And, and that's it. You know, obviously, they're the trainer. They got it. But I could give them information that can help them. Sure. And, and you know, you can also give them a, a reasonable plan. Hey, listen, this is the goal. We want to get this Philly you know, we want to win a stake with her, and if it doesn't look like that's going to happen, you know, we're not going to keep her on. Where, right. you, you know, you, you're going to look at a horse, and you're going to you're going to go in and see. And, and again, not not that those guys would do it because they don't need to do it, but but you know, you're going to go look at a horse at at a, at a barn and be able to tell, hey, this horse is not. You know, she doesn't look like she's moving forward. She looks worse, and and uh, you know, it's you're right. It, it's a it's a good thing, uh, and Larry certainly is committed to the business and. And um, and I, I wish you guys uh, all the success in, in the world because uh, we need more guys like, like Larry. And Larry kind of came in, um, you know, he came into the business guns blazing. <laughs> Only million-dollar horses, you know. <laughs> right. and, 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 of course, that always, you know, raises some eyebrows. And um, But, uh, you know, that that's – we need more people. Unfortunately, there's not uh, – 25 Larry's to come in and, and, and just, uh, you know, spend money and, and want to have the best horses, want to be at the top of the game. And, and now, you know, breeding horses, which of course is <sighs> breeding horses is tough, man. It's really tough. It's tough thing. I, the foray is about to start in February. <laughs> I, I was telling somebody one time, I said, you know, I go to these sales and like the Keeneland September sale, I was working it for a couple of years and I had buyers at all levels, book one to book seven. 
So it was just exhausting walking up and down those hills. And like you said, after a couple of days, they all kind of start to look a little bit the same, you know. And your your patience as the books go on and the horses get a little bit uh, more crooked and, and more have more issues, you, you just don't spend the time looking at them. And I remember telling somebody, you know, a guy bred that horse and, and he he planned that mating and he found that mare and then he studied the to try to you know find what stallion he should get to. Then he, he they actually bred the the mare and then they waited and they had the foal and then the foal was raised and they did all the the work. Uh, you know, to, to get the foal healthy and, and, and going, going good. And, and then they sale prepped it. And, you know, it's like a three-year process and they bring the horse out. And after about 12 seconds, I, I just like nix it. And like, I, I put it back. You know, right, like, right, that guy spent right. three years to get the horse to that point. I know. And I, 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 I put the kibosh on the horse in like, you know, 15 seconds. It's like, man, breeding horses is really hard. <laughs> it's, you know, and, we we've talked about that and you know larry has bought a lot of horses in the first four years and now three stallions standing now with instagram and, and still the regard at TaylorMade, and then Roayton standing in pennsylvania um you know he bought some really good mares and concrete rows he already had blue prize you know he, he he's 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 doing it and you know the one thing that you know frank taylor at TaylorMade and everybody in the breeding industry knows when you breed, you get what comes out. That's it. Yep. You know, when you're buying, you can pick and choose. No, I don't like that. I don't like this. So, you know, there, there'll be some, there'll be some of that. Yeah. Well, there's, there's always some randomness and, and that's the thing is, is a million dollar horses, a bunch of them can't run at all. And every it's year, one of the worst areas numbers wise. You know, when you look at the numbers of where these graded stakes horses coming from, a large number of them aren't coming from that. No. I, I said this on our podcast that I do with Barry last night. I said, you know, the truth of the matter is someone told me a long time ago, the difference once you get over three, 400000 it's just pedigree. He goes, the physical right. on a $400,000 horse isn't any different than it is on an $800,000 horse. No, you know? not. It's You're just right. pedigree, and, and it's pedigree, and it gets to be ego, where a guy's like, I'm getting that horse, that's my, you know. Uh, and, and I mean, look look at the horse who just won the two-year-old stake in New York. He's won uh, uh, two in a row, the horse that won the Remsen, $5,000 horse. Right. <laughs> and listen, I don't suggest going out and buying $5,000 horses and no, saying, you know, as a strategy, but it, it, it just goes to show you it's, it's well, the, a lot of randomness. When I watch Vacoma, it's <laughs> unbelievable that Vacoma, that, that George Weaver, they've done such a good job with that horse. That, you know, and there's, the, you know, obviously you're not going out to try to buy crooked horses, but man, that one. I, I had a horse who was, who wasn't, wasn't quite as good as Vacoma, a horse named Strength and Honor, used by Carson City. And I got the horse as a three-year-old, early in his three-year-old year, like right at the beginning of the year. And he had run once as a two-year-old um, in New York and, and run pretty good. And he was a, he was like, I, I said, he looked like a rhino. He was so short and stocky, but he had a really good pedigree. I think he was a, a half to Mahogany Hall, who was a grade one winner going long. But this horse was just a sprinter. He was, he, he turned out so bad in his right front. It was similar to Vacoma and he would paddle. And I remember, he, I think he won nine of like twenty-one. He won a couple stakes at Churchill. I, I brought him up yesterday because um, he—that was the only time Garrett Gomez ever rode a horse for him. He rode him. He, he uh, you know, it was the anniversary of his death yesterday, and 
he, right. he won a stake on him uh, for me. And but I remember used to I used to sit in my office at Churchill and watch him walk down the shed row, and I used to say to myself, you know, you think you're smart, but you know the truth of the matter is, if they brought that horse out as a yearling, that that a horse that got the 15 second job, yeah, <laughs> no, no thanks, no thanks. And 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 we wound up doing like four throat surgeries on the horse. And I remember uh, Embertson at Bruden Riddle finally said, listen, we can't do any more laser of the palate of this horse because there's no more palate to laser. It's over. You know, this is right. this is the last one. And and the horse was, I mean, he ran 114 buyer at Keeneland one day and, and just a, a spectacularly fast horse. But it's just, uh, you know, and, and it's a good thing that there's not just a single formula because then, you know, Sheikh Mohammed would probably have more money than well, most everyone else would just buy all the horses. That's it. it. I mean, it's not what you pay for him is just what it costs for you to get that horse. After that, who knows? Because, like you said, if it was a numbers game as far as who paid the most, well, then Sheikh Mohammed would win every race that there is. Yeah, that was one of the things. Um, uh, Jason Beam had me on his, his uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about Calder and the demise of Calder. And afterwards, I was kicking myself because I said, you know, one of the, the most um, unbelievable things I'll never forget happened to Calder, but it wasn't in a race. It was in the paddock when the Green Monkey was sold for $15 million. I was standing right there. Yeah, I, w- I was there, and, I, and I, I remember like just being, once it got past $10 million, it, it was just like, you know, is this real? <laughs> People right. looking at each other like, are you kidding me? I mean, I think the old record was like $5 million. So, well, you had the you had Wayne Hughes, you had Stone Street in early, you know, and then the two um, Coolmore and, and uh, Sheikh Mohammed bidding at the end. But I mean, after it got to like seven million, it was going up five hundred thousand a bid. <laughs> yeah, and it I was, was like holy crap. That 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 was that was just nuts. I mean, I've been a million sales. I've seen a lot of expensive horses sold, and but most of the time. You know the expensive ones, especially like in the November sale when the mares come in and they got, you know, they've got, they just won the Breeders' Cup <laughs> this staff. You, you know, you know they're bringing big money. So it's, it's, you're prepared for it. And, and everybody kind of knew because the horse worked so fast and there was all this rumbling right. that he was going to bring big money. But if you had told somebody, yeah, he's going to bring 15, you know, they'd have had your head examined. But that, that was, yeah. that was one of the craziest things. I, I I'll, I'll never forget being there and just being, for ten minutes, just watching those two go back and forth, and oh, they went at it like monopoly money. And then the horse, you know, literally couldn't run at all. Mm, yeah, that was sad. Yeah, but but that that just is uh, you know that that's the the great thing about the sport is that the the little guy can win. You know, you can't beat him consistently, but but every once in a while, a John Henry will, will show up, and and a, a horse uh, a horse like that will. We'll go on and, and beat everybody. And um, who who's who's your favorite horse that you ever? Not that you trained, because obviously Singletary would probably be, be high on that list. But but who like who's your favorite horse growing up, or or you know just watching from afar? Um, of all time, my favorite horse is Sunday Silence. Yeah. Um, you know, you had a big, um, you had a you know on the rail you know how we are on the rail in the morning we talk about this horse back in the day even more so than now now not as much you know and you had two factions so to speak at Santa Anita you had Houston for Wayne Lucas and you had Sunday Silence for 
Whittingham, which Sunday Silence, I mean, Houston was 4-5, to five, I think, in the Santa Anita Derby when, when uh, Sunday Silence kicked his rear end. But, uh, and I always was a Sunday Silence guy. But when they went through the Triple Crown, you know, and obviously it's a huge deal, the Phippses and Suge against Charlie Whittingham and, and the Hancocks on one side. And, and uh, when you get to Gulfstream for the Breeders' Cup that year, and, I mean, you want to talk about East Coast versus West Coast. That was it right there. You could feel the tension in the place when that classic came out onto the track. Yeah. And for Sunday Science to put on, I mean, I don't think people realize going a mile and a quarter when you make your move at the five ace pole, you're getting caught by a horse like Sunday, Easy Goer at the ace pole. I mean, they literally both took off at the five ace. And broke the track record the whole bit, and I don't know. He's always been my favorite. You know, I, I watched that Santa Anita Derby. I watched that race at Gulfstream, for, standing on a bench about the eighth pole. And uh, and I was I was a New York guy. I was an easygoer guy. Oh, of course. And uh, he just didn't have that. That he just couldn't run the turns like easygoer or like Sunday Silence could. He just couldn't yeah, and, run the you know, turns. Had the, had the Breeders' Cup been at Belmont that year, it would have been. A, it yeah. might have been a different yeah. story because that horse. I mean, he was. And you know, I, I love Shug McGahey. He's one of my favorite guys. He's one of my favorite trainers. And uh, you know, but he was the young Shug then. And um, but that, that was that was a great rivalry. It sure was, and uh, it, it really is. Uh, you know, people nowadays. You know, you, you talk about the time when New York and versus California was an actual. You know, there there wasn't people on one side or the other side, and it was kind of a fifty-fifty thing. And it's, oh yeah, it's it, it, it's hard to believe at this point now because California racing, unfortunately, has been really, you know, kind of knocked for a loop, but. Um, and Kentucky, of course, has has risen dramatically um, yeah. since those times. But yeah, he he was he was some good horse. Uh, he was he was really. I, I remember watching him work in between races at Del Mar, and he was getting ready, I think, for the Super Derby. Right, and that's he worked what it was. when he worked, worked like ten or something. Yeah, yeah, he galloped out like one a mile, in like thirty five, and the track record was like one thirty four and four, boy. and. Um, Chris McCarron worked him. I think that was when Chris started started riding him because of you know Pval had all his issues. But and then you know Sunday Silence. The, the, the irony of all ironies is, if you had asked anyone who was going to be the most successful stallion out of the two, everybody would have picked Easy Goer because he was just you know a more classically bred horse, and the Phippses were going to support him, horse. and Claiborne, right. you know. And, and and Sunday Silence winds up and, and and turns into one of the most uh, you know prolific stallions in in in, uh, in I mean certainly in Japan and, and anywhere really his numbers are just uh, amazing and his influence is still being felt all over the place. Well, he was always the you know he he was the um, disrespected one. He was Rodney Dangerfield. You know he went through two sales as a young horse and couldn't sell. That's how they ended up just keeping him. And then he did what he did on the racetrack and still couldn't hit as a stallion here. No one really wanted to put up the money that they were going to put up in Japan. Yeah. Yep. It's, well, you know, it worked. And, 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 you know, like you're talking about earlier, context, who knows? I mean, had he come here and maybe he doesn't get, you know, right off the bat, doesn't have a, a great early crop or they don't sell well. And maybe he winds in Turkey and, you know, <laughs> Right, <laughs> or somewhere right. like that. So it's it's just a 
it's just it's just you know it's there's so much randomness uh i, I have another guest on after you but uh i wanted to bring him on just quick uh special guest number two are you there yeah i'm here don you recognize that voice i didn't couldn't hear what's going on do you know who that is no that's singletary's mascot going on don how's it going all good man all good just hanging out in oklahoma city a lot of snow oh yeah yeah this is the the, sing, the singletary reunion the winter circle reunion show we have and i'll be <laughs> honest the winter circle it, it, we it, almost it, broke like a whole balcony <laughs> <laughs> it was funny because i was wow. i was trying to have don on last week and then things kind of got uh, sideways, and then uh, you know, I, I I texted him yesterday about coming on, and then I was thinking about you know, Joe. I've been thinking about you know having you on a couple weeks since Calder actually, and the uh, and then I I booked it, and I was like, hey, <laughs> I remember so <laughs> yeah, I, I remember it. I, I couldn't find any video of of the the when the thing kind of almost came down, but uh, well, and when they almost crushed, well, he was little Joe Santos then. Now he's taller than me. But he was our he was our mascot for the whole week. Yeah, yeah I I, I do remember. I do remember. That was a real good time. I think that's the first time I ever went to a bar. I was like ten years old <laughs> <laughs> after that race. <laughs> we were playing uh, in the bar until like two in the morning. I, I mean, I I aged about thirty years that day. Horse racing, man. We're ten year olds get yeah, to go horse. to bars. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know the four seasons in Dallas because we stayed there that whole week. And so we're talking Singletary, Singletary, Singletary. Well, the manager of the bar, because they were like California, one thirty last call, they closed at 2. The guy told us, if you guys win the previous Cup, I'll keep this bar open all night for you. <laughs> Can you believe that we won it? <laughs> he, did. he kept it open. <laughs> he did not lie. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Don, listen, man, I appreciate your time. And uh, like I said, Just best of luck. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For sure. And Don, keep, I'll talk to you Keep soon, on. Man. All right. Take care. You got it. Yep, you too. All right. Bye. Joe. What's going on, man? I'm I'm surprised that you have time in your schedule for us, being that you seemingly represent 90% of the jockeys in the Midwest. That's, that's what it seems like. I've been working up until it's 2.30, until about 2.30 here, and I took a break, and now, now I'm on for this. I'm excited to be on, man. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. This is uh, Jose Santos Jr. Um, we we actually Jose Santos Senior was was on my first show. Your dad was. Uh, right. That's uh, yeah. He was on your first show. Right. Yeah, he he was. And um, are we the first father son combo to be on the this show? This is that you are the first father son combo. Nice. So awesome. There is a first of of, of all firsts. Uh, Don kind of blew it because uh, you know I was going to say. Hey, your dad was a Hall of Fame jockey. Why? Why aren't you a jockey? Me? <laughs> yeah, just way too big. Yeah. Yeah, I think went down. I'm I'm about five foot ten, five foot eleven. I think your mom blew that because she's she's a lot taller than your dad. Yeah, yeah, she's a lot taller. But you know her uh, her father and brother both jockeys. Yeah, um, I think your uncle Frankie Castillo or, or your her, yeah, that was my uh, yeah, that was my uncle. That he, was my grandfather's brother. Yeah, he Frankie. he he worked for me for for years. 
He was a cool in, guy in Kentucky. Really good dude. He he was he, he was a great guy. A couple years ago, but really good guy. He was. He he used to. We're talking about that horse, Strength and Honor. I had, and who was kind of a rogue horse, and 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 he Frankie used to get on him, and he you know Frankie wasn't a little guy, and he used to pony, and 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 he was a he was a really good horseman, and he had a great opinion, and and he was like one of the only guys that that had enough. Um, <laughs> of guts to get on this horse on a daily basis because he, he literally wanted to run off every day and and uh, he, he used to do a great job and i remember he breezed we were getting ready for a race on derby day and, and frankie breezed him in 57 and change and frankie probably weighed 160 at the time so i said man this right. horse is he's, he's like don't even give me a paycheck just bet it all on this horse he can't lose you know <laughs> <laughs> um i like that but uh you know you so you grew up in in South Florida? Yeah, you know, in, uh, I'd say third grade, I stopped doing the back and forth thing. We used to just travel with my dad, so I would be in Florida during the Gulf Stream, and we would stay there until school ended, and then I'd go up to New York, and I would stay there until, you know, school stopped in December, and then I would come back to Florida. And when I was in the third grade, my older sister, Nadia, was a freshman in high school, and she'd had enough of all that, you know. We switched schools all the time. Like every time we went back and forth, we were going back and forth into different schools because you couldn't always get back into the same school you were in. So she was like, you know, I want to have a normal life. I'm going to be in high school. So that's when we stayed down in Florida. And I lived in Florida from then until I went to college myself. And what school did you go to? I went to Bellarmine University in Louisville. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went there for about two and a half years, three years. I played soccer the first year. And then uh, after a year of that, I quit to become an agent. And I was going to school and being an agent at the same time. And uh, Bellarmine was just super expensive for that. And I went to Oakland one year. I think that was 2016. I went to Oakland for the first time. And uh, when I came back, I switched into UofL. And I would just do, you know, go to Oakland. And when I come back to Louisville for the rest of the year, I would just go to UofL. Who was, uh, who was your first jockey? Well, my first jockey was actually at Calder when I was the summer before I went to college. I had a jockey named Eddie Dominguez at Calder, and I did that that summer. It was awesome. And then uh, I picked up a rider named Aldo Quinchano in Kentucky for mm-hmm. Turfway, and he was just a guy from around that region who was looking for an agent. He was coming off an injury, and Nelson Arroyo actually hooked me up with him because Nerberto was riding at Turfway at that time. And he, you know, he knew Aldo and, you know, he, he knew I was into it and I had done it before and I knew how to handicap and, you know, that's what I really wanted to do. And he got me hooked up with Aldo. And then I also picked up a DDL Osorio like two months into that. And I, I got with him through Ricardo Santana. They, uh, they grew up with each other over in Panama. And I've been friends with Ricardo since he came to America. You know, Ruben's like one of the guys that's helped me out, his agent, from the very beginning when I moved to Kentucky Ruben was over there and my parents gave him permission to you know make sure I was keeping in shape and doing everything right so I've been really close with all them for a while so he was able to help me out with that and you know just kind of gone on from there so did your dad ever discourage you from getting involved in racing or or has he been supportive no he wanted me to be a jockey which is, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted right. to be a jockey from, like, six months old. Like, they would turn on the TV at the races, and I'd pretend like I was riding a horse when I was a baby. 
and I rode horses all growing up and you know around like 14 I could tell I was going to be way too big and around that time was also the same time that my dad got Fernando Hara's book and uh, my dad he's awesome guy people love him but he wasn't very good on the computer or you know looking up horses you know he was kind of one of those agents just like walked around and got calls as it went, you know, off, you know, knowing people and, you know, having a good rider and people liking him. So when he was at Delaware with him, I started looking up the horses mm-hmm. and I would like send him lists of horses to ask about horses to ask about. And that's how I figured out that I wanted to be an agent. So currently you have how many jockeys? Uh, right now, I have four jockeys, but it's going to be five here soon once, you know, some new meets start. So right now at the fairgrounds, I have Declan Carroll at Remington Park. I have Roberto Morales, and I have David Cabrera, who's the leading rider. And then at Turfway Park, I have Alvin Jimenez. Okay, and, and you're, you're, you, are, you said you're going to get another jockey as well. Yeah, we're going to expand a little bit more. So uh, R- Roberto and I won't be working with each other anymore after Remington's over. Uh, I'm going to expand out into Houston with Ray Lou Gutierrez. And uh, I'm going to pick up Ken Towhill for Oakland with David. Cool. So I'll go to Oakland with David and Ken Towhill. So Ray Lou is going to go to uh, Sam Houston? To Houston, yeah. That's good. That, he'll do well there. He's a good jockey. Yeah, I think he'll do really well over there. And, you know, I've got, you know, David, he came with a lot of business from this region. And David leaving, you know, opens up a a pretty good gap over there. So I've spoken to some trainers and, you know, the ones who I think could help us be our focal point and he'll ride for them. And then I'll just do my job through there. Sure. Now, just finding, you know, horses and races we're going to be opening. Let me ask you this question. Being, where do you spend most of your time physically? This year it's been kind of crazy with COVID. You know, which is kind of what made all this possible because Zoom draws started happening and, you know, some track you couldn't be on the backside. So from when I left New Orleans, which is when COVID started, you know, really popping off, I went to Hot Springs and I stayed there until June because that's where my girlfriend lives. So I had Miguel at Churchill and I had Declan at Churchill and I had David at Lone Star. And I would just kind of, you know, pop into Lone Star every once in a while, but I just really stayed in Hot Springs. I never really went out to the track. And then when things started opening up a little bit more and, you know, Remington started, I got my spot at Remington. I keep a full-time place in Louisville, and I would just go back and forth, you know, every two weeks at one place, two weeks at the other, three weeks at one place, three weeks at the other. And uh, now with, you know, the Turfway thing, it, it wasn't really a planned out thing, but Albin called me. I would say first week of November, maybe last week of October, he called me and asked me if I'd be interested. And Alvin's a really good rider. And it's somebody who, you know, when I started in Kentucky, I started at Turfway. Alvin was a leading rider. You know, that's always somebody I've looked up to wanting to have. And uh, I'm really glad I did it because I love working with Alvin. And he does a really good job. But, you know, the funny thing about the Midwest is it's kind of a lot of the same players at all the racetracks. You know, they just have multiple strings at each racetrack. Sure. So most of the time, like, the trainers aren't even in that spot. You know, they're bouncing around to their different spots. So a lot of what I do is just over the phone for the most part. And then, you know, I like to check in, you know, once every couple weeks, you know, to each spot and just, you know, make sure the barns are taken care of with food and, you know, make sure I'm not missing out on anything. 
you know, checking in with the riders as well. That's a huge part of it, having really good communication with all the riders. But, you know, I'm trying to, I kind of want to start like an agency of sorts. You know, it's something that hasn't been done over here, but it happens in other countries. And I think I've got my part of it down. You know, it's all about having the riders going to be comfortable with it. And right now I have a really, really, really great crew of riders who, you know, understand what I'm trying to do. And they have faith that I'm doing my part and that I'm the best option for them, which is always, you know, that's always a really good feeling. That, that's very true. Um, you know, like you had talked about earlier about the COVID issues, I know that a lot of tracks weren't allowing jockey agents or for that matter, jockeys on the backside. And I know that right. uh, in New York, I know that the jockeys can work a horse, but it has to go to the paddock. And, and then it's it's kind of a long, convoluted uh, process to do. But I think agents are allowed. But, and, and like at Gulfstream, I don't think agents are allowed. And I don't even think right. jockeys yeah, are allowed. Yeah, different. You know, so, so that's um, in a perfect world where people are allowed to do things and we're allowed to jockeys are allowed to go on the backside and agents are allowed to go on the backside. Is that going to make your job harder trying to get all the, um, I, I would think that doing setting up the mornings would be as difficult as anything because, uh, you know, from a remote location, uh, I, I just know from my own experience that, um, you know, I have a jockey lined up to ride, to get on my horse at seven, but he's got one at six thirty, and the horse, you know, there doesn't, the horse doesn't come out on time and then it pushes right. me back. Pushes, is, is, do, you, do you anticipate any issues? Like that's the only kind of thing I, I could see being an issue for you not being um, there physically is, is, is kind of coordinating that. You know, that has like come up where a rider was going to be late. But like I said, I've, I just got every rider I have for the most part outside of Ken, who I'm picking up is younger and they're really good at texting with me. Right. I know where they're at most of the time. You know, if they're running five minutes late, they'll text me. I'm five minutes late for this worker. I'll call that trainer immediately. Sure. They're going to be five minutes behind. You know, whether or not they are even going to be five minutes behind, I just want to give them that heads up because the worst thing we know is the horse tacked up, circling around six, seven times. <laughs> you know, the horse knows something's about to happen. You know, as you know, they're very intelligent animals. So, you know, you don't want them getting too amped up. And, you know, if I can avoid that from happening, I'm going I'm to try to do that. But, you know, I, I think... For stuff like that, just the really big key is just always having good communication with my riders. So, you know, I always know what's going on, even when I'm not there. If they can tell me, I can handle it. I, I, I know, I know from experience, trainers are the biggest crybabies in America. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you mean you're going to be five minutes late? You know, like, yeah, well, things happen. Right? No, you know, we we want to make everything perfect, but sure. not always right. It's not a perfect world. No, that that's. Um... I, I like your idea, though. I, I think that it's progressive thinking, and and uh, if if you're doing a good job, there's no reason that you can't do a good job for for all of the you know as many as you think you can handle safely or not safely, right, but right. you know and, without uh, without it impeding right. someone else. I think the biggest part of it is like I don't think right now with what I'm doing, I could dip into like. Florida or to New York because it's a different group of trainers. You know, it's not the same collective of trainers. Sure. A lot of my main clients have horses at each one of those, you know what I mean? Jurisdictions. Yeah. So I'm getting 10 calls from them at Oaklawn, but I also have, you know, 
seven calls for them at the fairgrounds and we've got 15 calls at Houston and we can just knock all that out then. You know, and horses ship around in those regions. Like, they don't work at this level. You know, let's try them at this level at this racetrack. It's a lot of the same pool. A lot of the horses are coming from the same pool. So It's funny because... That's why I think it works. Like, for instance, uh, Declan's Mountain, the Breeders' Cup this year that Mm -hmm. he rode. That horse came from Remington. And the horse he got fourth on Empire Gold. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that horse ran really well. It he ran really well. Yeah, yeah, really nice. He ran second in the Phoenix and then fourth in the Breeders' Cup. And you know, Lane Lozzi won on him at Remington. And we actually had a guy, my father and I, who wanted us to buy a three-year-old Sprinter and send him to Saudi Arabia because we had success with that last year with that horse of Jaime Mejia's. His name's escaping me. Right, Gladiator King. Yes. We sold him and sent him up there, and he did a really good job. They said, you know, if you ever see anything like that again, let me know. So I was there that day, and he beat a really good field, and I called my dad. I said, I think, I think this is the horse. And he said, well, you know, go offer him, you know, some money for him and see if we can get something done. So I went to talk to him, and he said, well, you know, I'm not really interested in selling him. I want to run him in this stake over at Keeneland. And I was like, well, that's, that's perfect. You know, I've got a rider over there, and we'd love to ride him. So yeah. I checked in with him about a week later, and he let us ride him, and he ran second in the Phoenix, and it turned into being fourth, you know, over there in the Breeders' Cup, and, you know, there's, but there's a lot of situations like that. I have a lot of horses that, you know, I had Miguel earlier in the year that Declan and Miguel had ridden in Kentucky, and then they made their way down to Texas, or, you know, it kind of goes back and forth that way. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I know from talking to some of the, you know, the best agents um, with, you know, with the top jockeys that it's not as easy as people think it is because you run into these situations where, um, you know, you have a, a jockey that's in demand for these graded stake races, and the owners are not going to be nearly as accepting of a, a second-tier rider, and you wind up having to piss off a really good trainer because, oh, yeah. you know, you're riding a, another guy's horse, and, uh, I mean, certainly there's a hierarchy at the smaller tracks, and, you know, you know who the top guy is and who the second guy is and who the third guy is, and and uh, right. it, 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 that's the one... The one thing about you know the New York, um, Southern California situations, and that's why you know you've seen a lot of these jockeys who probably twenty years ago the jockeys would have not been nearly as accepting of a top jockey having or his agent having you know the third or fourth rank jockey. They just you know a lot of them just right. didn't they wouldn't have went for it. But now they do it because a lot of times um, they get double calls and and they wound up. Hell, they wound up beating the, you know, they wound up picking right. up their own, uh, you know, their own second calls from their own agent, and, and those are all live horses as well. So. Right. And, you know, my, my other idea about it is, you know, if you have multiple riders, then the phone's going to be ringing for multiple people. And, you know, if they can't have something that can happen, maybe you can help them happen with this, you know, and... You know, it kind of it kind of keeps the be- the business coming and generating and helps you build more business. Because that's all you know. I can try to do is try to generate as much good business as possible for us. You know, that's that's my main goal. Sure. Try to know where the people that we have to take care of are going to be running their horses, and then from there, what's the best horse I can get on in this race, or what does me riding this horse do to get this horse that I want later down the line? That's where you know a lot of my thinking has to derive from. So so now. I know most of the um, racing offices are doing the Zoom draws, and for people that don't realize, a draw is 
is where the races are actually, well, literally drawn. Um, right. And, uh, you know, the, they come out with, uh, the racing office comes out with uh, the races in groups and, and then they draw the post positions and name a jockey. And um, has that been more difficult for you, less difficult, you know, just as an agent in general, um, or about the same? I think it's about the same in effectiveness. I mean, maybe at first when we were trying to get the kinks worked out of it and it was new to everybody, you know, horse racing, as you know, both about, we hate new ideas in horse racing for some reason, you know, it yeah. really scares everybody. And, you know, at first it did, but I think now people are getting accustomed to it. And if anything, it might lead to other advancements. I'm hoping like, I personally don't understand why you can't get onto a database, use yourself as a trainer and enter your horse with your jockey. Uh, I'm the, pretty sure that the, um, now some tractors, the trotters do that. They, the USTA system, um, the geez. trainers enter through the system. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I, I don't, I think Hawthorne does it. I think there's some other tracks doing it, but you know, why wouldn't you want to do something that way? You know, it's just kind of the new wave of the world. The world has changed from when people used to call up their entries in the 80s. You know, the world has changed from, you know, earlier in the game where you used to fill out the the entry card, yeah. you know, and hand those in. You know, it's, Physically it's do a different it, right. world than then. Yeah, right. with a pencil. So, yep. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, so, the, I, you know, the entry box. that the game moves. <laughs> the entry box literally was I, a box. <laughs> Right, yeah, and you drop the box. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's changed so much from that, and you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully, somebody with the right technology can come in and change it even more because it'll only be more effective on people trying to get things done, and it will also introduce that new owner or that new trainer who's younger and gets it and runs their own successful business, you know, and you know, understands how the the world around us is functioning and how this is kind of a little bit more behind, you know, I think it would attract that. Yeah, exactly. I, I do too. And I think that's one of the big keys of, um, that young people can, um, influence this business is, is that we need to embrace technology and For sure. the, the advances, um, that other our competitors are going to, to advance and, and we need to make things simpler. And, 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 you know, there's so many traditions that we, we hold in racing and some of them are great, but, but, um, I, I mean, I've not I'm probably pissing off all the racing secretaries in the country, but I, I really have a problem with the way the races are written in a lot of places. And they, they don't seem to, they, they paint themselves in corners and, um, it'd be nice if tracks worked together a little bit and instead of seeing the next track as competition saying, Hey, these trainers have horses at all these different places. You're going to get some of ours. We're going to get some of yours. Let's try to work together so that we can, you know, everybody, we can maximize the horses that are available. And Right. And I, that might be a kind of a pie in the sky look at things, but. Um, I, I mean, it used to frustrate me to no end uh, when I was in Pennsylvania when um, they'd put up Pennsylvania bred races at Penn and at Parks in the same condition book. 
against each right. other. If one, you know, and I used to say, I said, can't you guys just do it every other month? Like, you know, right. you do one and you do one. And, the fairgrounds and, and Delta down. Yeah. You know, it, they run their meetups. Oh man, that gets me so much. Right. There's <laughs> only, there's have, only so many. all charted out. You know, I don't have anyone at Delta. I have a race all charted out from the fairgrounds. I, I know what I wanted to do. And I've put all this work together, you know, see who's going in all these Louisiana bread races. And then I call these trainers. They're like, well, I'm going to enter in that race. You know, it's a day before over at Delta. So if it doesn't go at Delta, I'll go over there. And it's like, you know, of course it's going at Delta. Everyone's got the same idea that you have. Yeah, exactly. You know? And then they start waiting to write the book to see when that one came out so they can put their race the day before them. It's kind of rough, but, you know, that's part of it. You know, they're they're in competition for, their, for you know, their own business. They're owned by completely different companies, and they're fighting against each other quite literally. Yeah, and I mean, to me, it'd be better to work together because the fact is the trainers are going to do what the trainers want to do. And, and this day, like, racing racing executives just have to understand that they're not in the position that they were, bef- like, when I was your age, when there was still a huge demand for stalls. Yes, certain tracks are going to have a big demand. Right. But for the most part, there's going to be empty stalls. There was empty stalls at Saratoga, not let this year because of the COVID, but last year there was, there was two or 300 empty stalls right. at Saratoga, Saratoga, Saratoga. Right. That's, that's the, that's the meat that every owner in America it. wants to be, be running in. And, and they, you know, were short horses and, um, right. It's just, uh, you know, we need to work together to try to make things better because the competition that's is, a, is, that's is a really is cool strong. thing that's happening in Kentucky as well. When I first started at Turfway, the bottom maiden claiming purse was $5,500. So, of course, you weren't getting many people that wanted to be there. And, you know, the training centers that you would go around, like the Thoroughbred Training Center, now this one's called Ashwood, but it used to be called, I can't remember what it used to be called. Uh, and then there was High Point. You know, they were all kind of mm-hmm. empty. Kentucky's product has gotten so much better. All those places are jammed packed. And there's good trainers and good horses at those training centers, you know. They, they've, they're getting it really figured out over there in Kentucky where horse racing over there. I think, I don't know how soon with that slot thing just happened, you know, the, the instant gaming thing that just happened where it looks like it might not get passed, but if they can get all that figured out and keep the money right, Kentucky racing is going to be the cream of the crop. I really do believe that. Yeah. I know that they held some hearings um, today about that and hopefully they'll be able to come up with a, a solution to that issue to, to just not to, to t- take those away just would be so would be harmful to race. Allow gaming. I just mean, allow you can drive exactly. over the bridge to, you know, Indiana or over the bridge to Ohio. And it's been, it's been, you want. it's mean, been we're, 20 we're years. Surrounded by them. It's been 20 years yeah, of the just, same argument. And it's like, it's just so, Come on, it's you know, 2020. It makes so little sense to me. You know, because they're going to go do it. I have friends that are going to go drive of course, to Indiana of course. and go on the boat and go I, gamble, or they're going to go over there and sports wager now. You know, I mean, they're going to do that. We were we were arguing for this in 2002 and 2003, and we used to they used to go over and take pictures across the river, and and there was right. it was 90 percent Kentucky plates and. Right. I mean, it's 2020, you know, we're, we're surviving pandemics and stuff. It's not going to kill people <laughs> to play slot machines and call them I what they what are. You, you know, it's not, it's just not going to kill them. And But, you know, politics are what they are and they're a big giant mess. And That's above and, my head. And that's, uh, 
Yeah, the, the, honestly, the, the 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 less you try to figure out the political ramifications of any <laughs> situation, right? The the quite absolutely. The less aggravation you you'll have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Joe, listen, man, I appreciate you coming on and wish you all the success Thanks. in the world. And uh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. And um, you know, we'll keep we'll keep pushing your dad to to get on that computer and. And, and, and figure <laughs> I'll it out. handle it for him. He doesn't need to do that. He's <laughs> doing his thing with the feed now. He's he's got that down. <laughs> uh, he's funny. He knows what he's doing there. Hey, I ask, never I, help with anything. I, you ever send a horse around my region? Please keep me in mind. I ask your dad all the time. I said, you know, if you lost like thirty pounds, you could make a comeback. And he laughs. He goes thirty. He goes thirty is not right. Yeah. <laughs> You're a little low on the amount yeah. of weight you need to lose. I said, come he, on, he man. You do not need to do that. Uh, you just, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get you pumped up. He goes, no, no, I like to eat too much. <laughs> I would, uh, his, his wife, she's a really good at baking. And, like, bread was always his, like, you know, his yeah. biggest thing that he loved to eat. And that, he knew he couldn't. Yeah. So he's, he's truly enjoying it now. That's his kryptonite for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Joe, appreciate being on. Thank you for coming on and, uh. Look forward to seeing how how uh, how you get that agency thing going. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna give it a go. I think uh, I think I've got the right players in mind, and you know, I've got the right region down. I'm comfortable where I'm at, and I'm definitely gonna do it over here. And hopefully, it uh, it goes as well as I'm hoping for because I'm putting a lot of work into it. So hopefully, it all plays out. And I'll actually be down there the 22nd to the 28th visiting my family. So. All right. I'll make sure to say hi. For sure. Sounds great, Joe. All right, man. Thanks. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody. That was Jose Santos Jr., Joe Santos, who's an up-and-coming agent who's locking up the Midwest and uh, got a lot of new ideas, a lot of, a lot of energy. I don't have as much energy anymore. And we are going to wrap today's show up uh, I want to thank uh, Don Chatlos for coming on and talking about uh, where he's at and um, some of the things that he's seen over the last uh, few years and his time in the game. I thank Joe Santos for coming on and, and talking about uh, about his views on, on things and, and how he's doing uh, as, a, as a jock agent. And I want to thank everyone for listening. And um, we'll be back uh, actually – Actually, we have a an NBA preview show coming up on Thursday uh, that'll be uh, promoted on Facebook and Twitter. And if you don't like the NBA, then just shut up. I don't want to hear your nonsense. Just ignore it. But um, we have a couple surprise guests, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about it. So that's just the way it is. Anyways, uh, again, thanks to Don Chatlos, thanks to Jose Santos Jr., thank you to Casey, and thank you to, for listening. Appreciate it. See you next week. This is the Going in Circles podcast, oh, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. 